Well, at this time, let's turn in our Bibles to Joshua chapter 7. Joshua chapter 7. Let's give careful attention now to God's holy word, beginning in verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is beside Beth-Avon on the east side of Bethel, and spoke to them, saying, Go up and spy out the land. So the men went up and spied out Ai. And they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not let all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not weary all the people there, for the people of Ai are few. So about 3,000 men went up there from the people, but they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai struck down about 36 men, for they chased them from before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them down on the descent. Therefore the hearts of the people melted and became like water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. And Joshua said, Alas, Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. O Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear it and surround us and cut off our name from the earth. Then what will you do for your great name? So the Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why do you lie thus on your face? Israel has sinned. And they have also transgressed My covenant which I commanded them. For they have even taken some of the accursed things and have both stolen and deceived. And they have put it among their own stuff. Therefore the children of Israel could not stand before their enemies, but turned their backs before their enemies. Because they have become doomed to destruction. Neither will I be with you any more unless you destroy the accursed from among you. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, There is an accursed thing in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought according to your tribes. And it shall be that the tribe which the Lord takes shall come according to families. And the family which the Lord takes shall come by households. And the household which the Lord takes shall come man by man. Then it shall be that he who is taken with the accursed thing shall be burned with fire. He and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done a disgraceful thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel by their tribes, and the tribe of Judah was taken. He brought the clan of Judah, and he took the family of the Zarites, and he brought the family of the Zarites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. Then he brought his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Now Joshua said to Achan, My son, I beg you, give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to Him. 
and tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua and said, Indeed, I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel, and this is what I have done. When I saw among the spoils a beautiful Babylonian garment, 200 shekels of silver, and a wedge of gold weighing 50 shekels, I coveted them and took them. And there they are, hidden in the earth in the midst of my tent, with the silver under it. So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and there it was, hidden in his tent, with the silver under it. And they took them from the midst of the tent, brought them to Joshua and to all the children of Israel, and laid them out before the Lord. Then Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan the son of Zerah, the silver, the garment, the wedge of gold, his sons, his daughters, his oxen, his donkeys, his sheep, his tent, and all that he had. And they brought them to the valley of Achor, which means valley of trouble. And Joshua said, Why have you troubled us? The Lord will trouble you this day. So all Israel stoned him with stones. And they burned them with fire after they had stoned them with stones. Then they raised over him a great heap of stones, still there to this day. So the Lord turned from the fierceness of His anger. Therefore the name of that place has been called the Valley of Achor to this day. May the Lord bless the reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Joshua chapter 7 and focusing our attention here this morning upon verse 1. Joshua chapter 7 and verse 1. But the children of Israel committed a trespass regarding the accursed things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, the son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took of the accursed things. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Now what we find in Joshua chapter 7 is startling. It's shocking. Israel has suffered what amounts to an utterly shocking defeat. If you look at the last verse of chapter 6, which describes Joshua and Israel's victory over Jericho, you can see chapter 6, verse 27, So the Lord was with Joshua, and His fame spread throughout all the country. Things could not have looked more promising for the Israelites at this particular time in their conquest of the land of Canaan. The Lord, Jehovah, was with His people, with Joshua who was leading them as a forerunner and precursor and type and shadow of the conquering King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Israel is on the warpath and the surrounding nations we know which is alluded to in this verse here that I just read, but also in other passages throughout the Scriptures, the other nations were afraid. They were trembling. They were shaking like a leaf. They anticipated that this onslaught would continue uh, to the point where even the Gibeonites, uh, as they're anticipating Israel coming their way, they come up with a plan to try to trick Israel into making a peace treaty with them. Uh, So Israel had all the momentum in the world outwardly speaking. But now they come to Ai, this tiny city that we learn later on in chapter 8 had 12,000 men defending it. And in chapter 8, when Israel eventually does defeat Ai, they're able to bring 30,000 against that 12,000. I mean, this was um, the equivalent of 
you know, one of the top college basketball teams in the country playing a no-name school that barely qualified for Division I uh, when, when we think of uh, in the world of sports. This is something nobody was anticipating. It would be like if the United States declared war on some tiny uh, nation somewhere with, with not much of a military. You wouldn't expect the United States to lose that war. And, and this was unexpected as well. It was shocking. Joshua's fame and Israel's uh, reputation had spread throughout the country, and you would have expected the men of Ai to be running in fear from God's people. But that's not the case. You can see, in some sense, the Israelites, when they send spies into the land, perhaps they're overconfident. They say, well, there's 12,000 of them, 3,000 of our troops can take care of it. So they're a bit lackadaisical, uh, perhaps tempting the Lord. When God saves them and gives them the victory miraculously, um, that, that's something in its own right, but, but God can also tell His people, as He did here, uh, to win the battle in the ordinary way. Uh, there weren't going to be any miracles in the victory over Ai, and the right thing for Israel would have been to approach it the same way you would any military conflict, which is, if they have 12,000, let's at least uh, devote 12,000. If we can devote 20,000, 30,000, let's do it. Let's win the war. Let's win this battle according to the ordinary means. God hadn't promised a miracle. They were simply supposed to fight the war and use those means. And for whatever reason, they were tempting the Lord as if you know, they, either they're overconfident in themselves or they're thinking that God's going to do another miracle. In any event, when their 3,000 attack the city of Ai, they run in fear. Their hearts melt like water, and they're running away. This is shocking, especially when God had given them a divine commission to conquer the land. He had directed them to conquer Ai in particular, and thus far, His divine power had given them the victory every single time. They had a promise, a commission, and a power from God to win this war, and they were defeated. Not only that, but they ran in fear. This is not what was supposed to happen. When you go to Deuteronomy chapter 28, it says that when God's people are walking with Him in obedience, that uh, their enemies will be defeated fleeing in seven directions. Leviticus chapter 26 says, I think it's something like five of them will chase off a thousand of their enemies. And so it's Israel's enemies that ought to be in fear, but instead Israel is running in utter terror. And 36 of their men are killed. 36 men. 36 adult men. We don't know if all of them were married, but potentially 36 wives who are now widowed. Uh, 36 families where the children have no father coming back from the battle. Sorrowful. Tragic. 36 lives are lost and Israel cowers in defeat. Now the obvious explanation for this is, is exactly the explanation that we have in verse 1 that Israel has in some way provoked the Lord to anger. That's the obvious explanation. Again, if you go back to Deuteronomy 28 it says and Leviticus 26, both of them make the point that when Israel is walking faithfully with God in genuine heartfelt submission and obedience, honoring God's worship, honoring His commandments, honoring His Sabbath. When, when Israel's walking with God, then their enemies will flee. But when Israel is disobedient, Israel will flee. Israel will be shaking like a leaf. Israel will scatter in seven directions. And so in this case, it seems quite obvious that the reason Israel scattered in seven directions, as it were, is that Israel had provoked the Lord. This is exactly what Moses warned when he taught the children of Israel the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy 32. And uh, verse 30 of that chapter, it says this, How could one chase a thousand and two put ten thousand to flight unless their rock had sold them and the Lord had surrendered them? So Moses is saying explicitly, 
the obvious explanation for something like this happening and Israel being chased away, the obvious explanation is that God, their rock, had sold them, surrendered them. God was chastening them and judging them. The Lord God was provoked to anger. And we find, despite the fact that this is the obvious explanation, we find that even the godliest among the Israelites are clueless to this fact. Even the godliest Israelite himself, Joshua the son of Nun, when he comes before the Lord, falls on his face in the presence of God and offers up a prayer, he's not mindful of the obvious explanation for what has happened. So, if you look at verse 6, after the defeat, Joshua, it says, tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until evening. He and the elders of Israel, and they put dust on their heads. So they're humbling themselves, Joshua and the elders, and they're coming before the Lord in humility. They're coming before the Lord to call upon His name in light of this defeat. So far, so good. But notice Joshua, verse 7, he says, Alas, Lord God, why have You brought this people over the Jordan at all to deliver us into the hand of the Amorites, to destroy us? Oh, that we had been content and dwelt on the other side of the Jordan. That's in the land that was occupied by the two and a half tribes that that wanted to graze their flocks in in that land east of the Jordan. But Joshua's not mindful. He's not aware of the obvious explanation that Israel has sinned and provoked the Lord to wrath. Instead, he's crying out to the Lord saying, Lord, it's it's as if you haven't fulfilled your end of the bargain. You've brought us in and now you are abandoning us and giving us over to defeat and destruction. What gives? So he's humble and he's crying out in prayer, but he's ignoring the obvious explanation. He says, oh Lord, what shall I say when Israel turns its back before its enemies? It's as if he's saying to the Lord, you promised that you'd give us strength and courage. Be strong and courageous. That's the opening of the book of Joshua. You promised us that and I urged them to do that and then they ran in fear. So Lord, what gives? Why is this happening? What will you do for your great name? As if it would honor the Lord to bless His people and give them that strength and courage when they are willfully sinning against Him. Uh, That's not going to honor God's name. Joshua's just not up to speed on what's happening here. Um, It doesn't honor God's name to give His people the victory when they're living in flagrant rebellion and disobedience against Him. It honors His name to fulfill His covenant chastenings as He promised to do in Deuteronomy 28 and Leviticus chapter 26. That's what honors His name in the earth. But in any event, Joshua offers up this prayer. But notice the Lord's response, verse 10. Get up! Why do you lie thus on your face? If we were to translate this into a modern context, um, And when I say this, understand, it would have come as just as much of a shock for Joshua to hear this as for you to hear what I'm going to say. But but as if the, the Lord were to say to us, why are you having a prayer meeting? What is the point of this? Why are you all bowing your heads in prayer? Why are you gathering together for worship and calling upon my name? Get up. Why are you having a fast day? Why are you having a uh, an RP global day of prayer? Why are you doing this? Get up. Stop praying. That's shocking. It's shocking. There are a lot of shocking things in the Bible. Uh, but they're not shocking the more we read the Bible, the more we understand the character of our covenant God. Prayer is important. And of all the problems that any of us have, I doubt too much prayer is our biggest problem. So keep that in mind. But there are times when prayer gets in the way of action. There are times when God's Word is crystal clear and it's clear what we should be doing and instead we're just, you know, like like a plane that's just circling the runway and refusing to land. We need to get up and we need to do our duty. And in this case, Joshua should have seen clearly that God was chastening His people and therefore he should have immediately, at this point, he should have already been seeking to figure out in what way the people had offended 
the Lord. And perhaps he could have come before the Lord in prayer and asked that question, and maybe, maybe that would have been legitimate. But this type of prayer, God says, is out of place. Get up. That's not what we need right now as a prayer meeting. We need action because my word is clear on what needs to be done. Praying that I'll bless the people and give them the victory is an irrelevant prayer if you're currently doing the things that I've promised will lead to failure and defeat. So you've got to deal with the sin. And even Joshua is clueless about these things. But these things should not be unfamiliar to us. We just sang in Psalm 80, and I th- think the second stanza is helpful for us here. Oh, how long, Lord God of armies, burns Your wrath at Your people's prayer. With the bread of tears You feed them, and full measure of tears they drink. When we provoke God, and we'll consider some of the applications here, but when we provoke God the way Israel provoked God, we cannot expect that our prayers are going to have the efficacy, the impact. We cannot expect that our labors to disciple this nation are going to have the impact that we desire or even that God has promised to give us when we follow Him. Because we're not following Him. We're provoking Him. And for His great name, He has to chasten us. He has to do it because of His name, not in spite of His name. And in some ways, we have to ask the question, is this not in principle our present situation as the church of Jesus Christ, in, especially in the United States? Is this not our present situation? We could even say of, of the church of Jesus Christ in the world at large. Look at the world. The Bible tells us that when the church is fulfilling its missionary mandate and, and the Great Commission and the power of God unto salvation, last time I checked, um, you know, there's nothing that can stand in the way of the power of God, right? So we have the gospel. We have the power of God unto salvation. We have the Savior who gave us a great commission and said, I'll be with you till the end of the world to make this thing work. When the church is doing that, nations are are not taking up swords and spears and military weaponry to attack each other, but rather they're turning their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. But what do we see in the world today? The salt has lost its saltiness. The leaven isn't leavening. The light isn't shining as it ought. And so we're basically in the midst of, if, you know, if not on the verge of, World War III. We're in the midst of a time of great trouble in the global community. Uh, in addition, in, in terms of our own nation, for decades now, not to say the process started in the last few decades, but for decades now, uh, the, the advance of wickedness and perversion it has reached warp speed. Things are happening uh, to undermine even whatever scattered remnant of biblical ethics there remains in our culture to eradicate these things at, at, at a pace that we've never seen before. Our nation is going down the tubes and it's going down the tubes quickly. And the foundations of uh, a, a peaceful and righteous nation are being destroyed as our nation rejects the foundation of biblical Christianity. And you look at our state, the state of Michigan. For a while there, we were celebrating that Roe versus Wade was overturned, but now, at least for us, it's backfired. And uh, the enemy has come back in like a flood. Uh, you know, the... the, the, the you know, it's like, well, we destroyed the Death Star, but now Han Solo is in carbonite. There's the, you know, the empire has struck back. Things are not going well. It's an unexpected defeat on the heels of a, what was thought to be a great victory. You look at the church today in our, in our culture, in our society, and it is dominated by corruption, compromise, uh, conformity, to the world. You look at our own denomination and we are dealing with great trials and tribulations. We're dealing with previously unknown degrees of disunity and division and scandal and fill in the blank. You can can fill in that blank if you're aware of what's been happening in recent years. And uh, this is something we need to be aware of. 
This is something we need to take stock of. These surprising defeats. You wouldn't think that the Christian church today, having already, as it were, witnessed Satan defeated at the cross, having already seen the the legalistic Phariseeism defeated by the power of the Gospel through the apostles, Rome pagan, Rome papal, defeated throughout the, the, the centuries by the power of the Gospel, the Enlightenment, Uh, greatly defeated by the Great Awakening, so on and so forth, even modernism, modernity. Uh, While it certainly slayed its thousands, Christianity was able to withstand it, able to outlast it. And now we come to the current situation where postmodernism is eating us for lunch. That's surprising. Of all of those entities of all of those worldviews or political or religious groups that Christianity has outlasted and defeated over the centuries, postmodernity is the weakest. It's, it's a self-destructive, self-contradictory, uh, squeamish kind of worldview. It's nothing. Uh, it's like the city of Ai. We've already defeated Jericho and now we're, we're losing to Ai. It's shocking. And in the same way as Israel profaned God's holy things, they they took something that God said is off limits. The accursed things. In other words, if you touch it, you're cursed. Uh, The accursed thing from Jericho. Israel put its hand to profane God's holy things. And that's what we see in the church today. We see God's worship being profaned. Uh, When you get to the point in the life of of the church of Jesus Christ, when the idea that we should only offer up to God such worship as He dictates in His Word, when when that idea becomes a a partisan, peripheral doctrine, when when that idea, which is basically just the second commandment, worship God according to His commands, not according to your own whims and idols, when that becomes a denominational distinctive, friends, we're in trouble. We're in trouble. That should not be a fringe, peripheral opinion or private view. That's that's built into the Ten Commandments. right? So, God's holy worship is being profaned. Things are being added to it and subtracted from it week by week, every single Sabbath. And it's sad. It's tragic. It's offensive to the living God. He hates it. Uh, He may not hate the genuine religious devotion of people that are engaging these things, absolutely, but he does hate worship that adds or subtracts from his holy ordinance. That is happening. If there is any leaven, that's the leaven, at least in our day. That's happening. That's continuing. What about the Sabbath? Again, built into the Ten Commandments. Built in to the stone tablets that God gave to Moses on Mount Sinai. God's holy day. He gives us six days for our vocational work, our housework, our schoolwork, our recreation, uh, watching football, whatever. He gives us six days for that. He says, one day for me, worship, rest, holy exercises, ordinances of prayer, and, and uh, singing psalms, and reading and studying the Scriptures, and reading good Christian books, worshiping me, seeking me in private, in your family, and in public. One day a week is for me as a foretaste of what every day is going to be like in the eternal Sabbath that is to come. But it is profaned. I don't need to tell you that. I don't need to dwell on it. Uh, The Sabbath is profaned, not just by the culture, but by the professing people of God in this land, even by people that profess to be reformed and confessional, profaned, the the, the holy things, the accursed things, the things that if you reach out your hand and touch them or trample them under your feet, you're accursed. Deuteronomy 28 pronounces numerous curses upon Israel. Numerous curses upon Israel. And at the heart of it, It says it's because you didn't honor the holiness of my sanctuary and you didn't honor my Sabbath. In addition, the pulpit. The pulpit is a special place. It's a holy place. 
and I don't say that because I'm in the pulpit, it's an overwhelming, um, it's humbling, it's, it's an overwhelming burden in some sense to recognize how serious and, and important it is that we make sure that we're ordaining and sending men who are qualified to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, that we're keeping heretics and false teachers and uh, money grabbers out of the pulpit, that we're protecting and fencing the pulpit from those who would use it for their own ends, those who would proclaim to us things that God has not declared in His Word, those who are not fit, not trained, not qualified to do what God has called preachers to do. And I don't need to tell you that is not happening. The pulpit is not being filtered and fenced and protected in the way that it ought to be. In addition to that, the Lord's table. The Lord's table is profaned. It's profaned at a personal level. When God's people are not examining themselves and confessing their sins and engaging in appropriate communion preparation in anticipation of the Lord's Supper. We have communion coming up. And God's people need to be instructed on what it means to examine themselves, what true faith and true repentance is, and what it means to to make things right with God, to go before the Lord, confess your sins, receive His forgiveness, and come to the table ready by faith to receive grace, uh, ready by faith to discern in those outward elements of bread and wine, the spiritual significance of Christ's body and blood. When that's not happening, and people aren't even encouraged to do that, God's holy things become accursed things, 1 Corinthians 11 says. And people get sick and die. But we also, we also profane the Lord's table when we don't fence it as elders in the church. We, we don't interview people to, to hear their profession of faith. Obviously, the Communicate members of a given church would come to communion in their church, but in addition to that, elders need to you know, talk to people that are desiring to come to the Lord's Supper, hear their profession of faith. Where are you a church member? Are you baptized? Are you a member in good standing? 1 Corinthians 5, 1 Corinthians 11. We as elders have a duty to protect the holy things of the Lord from those who would reach out their hand without proper qualification, biblically. And if there are people who are suspended from the Lord's table that we're allowing to commune at the Lord's table, either because we just haven't asked them or interviewed them, or perish the thought that we know they're suspended and we're letting them come to the table, my friends, this is, this is a very troubling thing. We also profane our bodies in terms of the seventh commandment, not practicing biblical purity in terms of uh, what we do with our bodies, what we look at with our eyes, uh, the the way that we appear and and present ourselves in public. There are so many ways in which that body that Christians profess to be the temple of the Holy Spirit is profaned. And, And we can profane our homes. Achan, buried that Babylonian garment and the silver and the gold under his tent. What are we bringing into our tent? What are we hiding in our tent? What's coming? What's streaming into our devices and our televisions in our homes that in, in, in a way ought to be similarly a temple of the Holy Spirit where God dwells in the midst of His people. So we've similarly profaned God's holy things and like Joshua, we are blinded. And I think the church today, including myself, if if I'm not careful, and yourself, we can be easily blinded by this sort of therapeutic deism where we pretend that God is not integrally involved in every circumstance of life. And uh, if we do acknowledge that He's involved in certain circumstances, it's only the good and perfect gifts coming from above. It's never God rending the heavens and bringing judgment. It's a therapeutic deism. When it comes to bad things happening, God is a million miles away. And we wouldn't say it theologically, but if you were to make a statement that implied that God wasn't a million miles away from a bad thing that happened, ho oh, ho, you're not charitable. Uh, no, you're actually 
biblical, not to say you should go out of your way to make offensive statements, but the point is, God is not a million miles away from bad things that happen in the life of the church. God is just as involved in the bad things that happen as He is in the good things. Read Deuteronomy 28. He says at one point, just as I rejoiced over you to do you good, I will rejoice over you to do you evil. You say, is that really in the Bible? It is in the Bible. Deuteronomy chapter 28. Read it. We have to take stock of what the Bible actually says. Not these Christian t-shirts and bumper stickers, this therapeutic deism, this naive sentimentality. God says to us, as He said to Joshua, get up. Wake up. Enough of your fast days and your prayer meetings. They're good, in, they're good in a sense in themselves, but at this particular time, you need to discern the signs of the times and get up. My friends, read through the Scriptures. Therapeutic deism is a heresy. Joshua chapter 7, verse 1 tells us that when Israel committed a trespass, when the accursed thing was taken, the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. The anger of the Lord. God is not a million miles away. God is not a watchmaker that just wound it up and lives at a distance. And God is not this sentimental therapeutic deity who, who's just there to, to coddle us and dandle us on His knee. God is angered at our sin. God can be provoked to anger and His wrath can burn against His own people. Not to say that anyone who's been saved by Christ is under His infinite wrath, but when we sin against our Heavenly Father, there is a fatherly wrath that actually indicates that He is our Father and that we're not under His infinite wrath. But in any event, you read through the Scriptures and you see it time and time again. Nadab and Abihu offer strange fire before the Lord, and the Lord destroys them, consumes them with fire from heaven for offering man-made, unauthorized worship at the tabernacle of God's house. Dathan and Abiram, destroyed by God, swallowed up in the earth for their rebellion against God and against Moses. The men of Beth Shemesh, who touched the ark and looked into the ark, when the Ark of the Covenant came into their possession, they foolishly peered into the Ark and thousands of them dropped dead. Uzzah the priest, when David didn't have the Ark transported in the biblical way by the priests, he put it on an ox cart. And Uzzah the priest, when the oxen stumbled, he reached out his hand and touched the Ark and he dropped dead. King Uzziah, when he sought to offer up incense in the temple. He's a king. He's not a priest. It does not pertain to him. He was struck with leprosy and soon after that he died. Ananias and Sapphira. We're in the New Testament now. Ananias and Sapphira lie to the Holy Spirit and and they lie in such a way you'd say, well, they're giving money to the church. They just lied about what percentage of the sale of their property that they gave. They dropped dead. In Corinth, the church was neglecting church discipline, was profaning the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. People in Corinth got sick and dropped dead. Thankfully, it says they fell asleep, which implies perhaps that they were believers because believers in the New Testament are said to fall asleep. Uh, the people fell asleep in Jesus, but, but they, they dropped dead. Thyatira, Jesus says in His letter in the book of Revelation to Thyatira, that this false teacher Jezebel, he will kill her and her children. Whether that's referring to her followers or her literal children uh, is perhaps up for grabs. But Jesus kills people. He did in the Old and He does in the New Testament as well. We're blinded to this. We don't have categories for this. And it's significant in Joshua 7 that it all started with an individual sin. It all started when Achan, the son of Carmi, saw, coveted, took, and hid. Now, we're not going to spend a lot of time expounding these four things, but I would urge you to think about the danger of individual sin. How individual sin can lead to great trial and trouble in 
the life of an individual and in the life of God's people. He saw it. You think of Eve with the fruit. It reminds us of that. It reminds us of David on the rooftop uh, seeing Bathsheba. Uh, it reminds us perhaps of Judas as he's looking into that money bag and he, he just sees it and he covets the money and he takes it and he tries to hide it and one thing leads to another and eventually he has betrayed the Son of God into the hands of sinners. It all started with an individual sin. And whenever we talk about God's chastening of the church at large and of the failure of the church in the culture, we can very easily fall prey to the idea of moving away from an emphasis on personal responsibility, personal obedience, dealing with personal temptations. And, and, and that's, that's tragic because it's the personal, individual sins that more often than not lead to the ecclesiastical and national tragedies that surround us. So for instance, in our uh, prayer meeting in the midweek, we've been in Deuteronomy chapter 4, working through the book of Deuteronomy. And in this chapter, it talks about God's people being a light to the nations by obeying and applying God's law in every area of life, even in, in their uh, civil statutes. There's a corporate emphasis upon God, His people as a church, His people as a nation. There's an emphasis upon uh, biblical families teaching our children and our grandchildren. But at the heart of it, verse 9, only take heed to yourself and diligently keep yourself lest you forget the things your eyes have seen and lest they depart from your heart. So, yes, the family, yes, the church, yes, the nation needs to be reformed and conformed to the Word of God. But it begins with you, it begins with me in facing the personal temptations that we face. It begins with us learning personal self-control with our desires, with our passions. It, it, it means that you can prevent great calamity coming upon this congregation by being content and just not coveting and lusting. Being content. But Achan saw, he coveted, he took, he hid. You can prevent great calamity in the life of God's church, in the life of the nation, in the life of your family, simply by confessing your sin. He saw, he coveted, he took, he hid. He hid. Maybe that's the worst of the four verbs. But strictly speaking, there are no individual sins. That's what this chapter is telling us. Strictly speaking, uh, we could speak of individual sins in a general sense, but strictly speaking, there are no purely individual sins. And Paul had to remind the church in Corinth of this. They were allowing people to come to the Lord's table that were not biblically qualified to come to the Lord's table, guilty of various scandals. And 1 Corinthians 5, verse 6, Paul says to them, your glorying is not good. You see, they weren't just bringing these people to the table. They were celebrating it. They were boasting in it. Your boasting, your glorying is not good. So they weren't just welcoming them to the table. They were saying, this is a great thing. Let's celebrate this. Let's draw attention to this. Paul says, no, no, your glorying is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Sin is not purely individual. And you can see in chapter 7, verse 1 of Joshua that it's Achan who took the accursed thing. But notice, the children of Israel committed a trespass. So the anger of the Lord burned against the children of Israel. Individual sin? Well, maybe in a sense. But in the big picture, it's not individual. Israel sinned. And God is angry with Israel. And people in Israel are suffering. As you see the title of the sermon, Achan's sin brings Israel's misery. There are no individual sins. There's no such thing, strictly speaking. 36 men died. 36 wives became widows. 36 families, with, perhaps with children, lost the head of the household, lost their father, their husband. 36 men died. There are no individual sins. 
A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Achan took the accursed thing, but Israel sinned and God brought suffering on the whole group. You say, that's not fair. Well, this is not an apologetic sermon. Whether you think it's fair or not, it's biblical and it's true, so you'd better reckon with it. You'd better deal with that because that's what the text says. And God gives an ultimatum to His people, deal with the sin or continue to suffer. Deal with this sin or continue to suffer. And you can see this in verse 13 of our passage. Get up, sanctify the people, and say, Sanctify yourselves for tomorrow, because thus says the Lord God of Israel, there is an accursed thing in your midst. O Israel, you cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the accursed thing from among you. So God says, here's an ultimatum. You're going to fail to conquer the land. You're going to spin your wheels. You will run in fear. I will give you over to that fear. You will fail until you, as Paul says, purge out the old leaven. Uh, Expel the immoral brother. Purge out the old leaven. Deal with this accursed thing and with this accursed individual. And God gives them a process for doing that. There's a God-ordained process for identifying Uh, who this person is and for dealing with it and it's a process that was unique to that circumstance right we don't use a process like that when we purge out the old leaven they didn't use that process in Corinth we don't use that process today where God specially reveals which tribe which family which man so on and so forth no we don't use that process but it's important that they had to follow the process that God gave them And they did. And yet, in some sense, that process was unnecessary. It was a waste of everybody's time. I don't know how long it took to go through all the tribes of Israel and then go through all the families of Judah and then through all the men and all the descendants of Carmi and all this. I don't know how long that took, but that was a waste of time. Achan and perhaps some of his family members, perhaps all of his family members, we don't know how old his children were, They knew, they knew, Achan for sure knew what he had done. But here's Joshua and the elders of Israel wasting everybody's time. The the process of conquering the land is forestalled, it's put on hold. Now they have to go through this process and weed out this person and that family and so on and so forth. It's a waste of the time of God's people instead of conquering They're wasting time when it all could have been dealt with if Achan would have stood up and owned his sin. And my friends, at a national level, at a denominational level, at a church level, um, do we realize on Judgment Day that the Lord will hold us accountable not only for our sins, but He'll hold us accountable for the way in which our sins hamstrung the efforts of the Great Commission. All the people that could have been evangelized, all the shepherding visits that should have happened but it's not happening it's not happening because we're, we're, we're pulling out lots and playing ecclesiastical bingo to figure out who committed the sin my friends it's sad and the, the way to overcome it the way to, to 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 be more successful and victorious in advancing the kingdom is just personal responsibility just take Take heed to yourself, as Moses said in, in Deuteronomy 4.9. Just take stock of your own sin. Confess it. Deal with it. And, and let the church focus on the things the church needs to focus on in conquering and discipling the nations. Well, there's only one way out of the valley of Achor, the valley of trouble. Uh, Hosea 2.15 says that there's a door of hope. There's a door of hope. The valley of Achor is a door of hope. Well, what is, what is that door of hope? What is the only way out of the valley of trouble? Well, it's, it's just concluding here briefly. Um, it addresses various levels and aspects of the situation. So first, it involves corporate justice. Corporate justice. Uh, the church of Jesus Christ in this country, and ourselves included, needs to get up to speed on biblical church discipline. And, and I confess that myself, 
and our session and our denomination, and we need to get up to speed. We need to do a better job of that. But there needs to be corporate justice. If we don't purge out the old leaven, if we don't deal with the accursed thing and have uh, a process of biblical justice, we cannot expect God to bless the Great Commission in our land. Secondly, we need individual confession. I've already said this, so I won't dwell on it. Um, as Joshua says to Achan, glorify God by making confession. Give glory to the Lord God of Israel and make confession to Him. Now, he does confess it. Whether this is true repentance, I'm not so sure that Joshua's response to it indicates that Joshua thought it was true repentance. But either way, forget about Achan because that story's over. Think about yourself. Give glory to God and make a confession to Him. Confess your sin. Own it. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Stop hiding in the bushes with Adam and Eve. Thirdly, godly sorrow. If in the church of Jesus Christ, we're celebrating our inclusiveness of people who should not be at the Lord's table. If in our denomination, we're celebrating uh, the inclusiveness of, of people, uh, you know, including people at the Lord's table that shouldn't be there. If we're doing that, that glorying is not good. In fact, in Ezekiel 9.4, we're told that one of the things that helps us to be exempted from sharing in the corporate judgment when God brings His chastening hand upon the church, one of the, one of the things He does is He often exempts the people that are crying and sighing for the sins of Zion. Read Ezekiel 9.4. God instructs the instrument of His judgment in that passage not to bring judgment upon the Israelites that are crying and sighing for the sins of His people. So your glorying is not good, but also on the flip side, we need to be sorrowing. Godly sorrow. If it's not your sin, it's somebody else's sin, or denominational or national sin, sorrow over it. Don't boast in it. And perhaps you can avoid the, 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 the bitterness of God's chastening. Finally, don't enter in the first place. We don't want to go into the valley of trouble. Maybe we're in it. Maybe we're in it in this country, in the church in this country, in our denomination. Maybe we're in it in our presbytery, and we need to get out of it. But I just want to conclude by saying, to the extent that we can avoid going in in the first place, prevention is the best cure. Don't enter into the valley of trouble in the first place. Guard your heart. Keep yourself in the love of God. Keep yourself from idols. Godliness with contentment is great gain, not just for you, but for the church worldwide. Let's pray. Gracious God, we call upon Your name mindful that we have sinned against You. And we desire not to glory in our sin, but to glorify You by confessing it. We pray that You would bless our prayer time during the class time. We pray that Your Spirit would dwell in us to convict us of sin, righteousness, and judgment to come to humble us with confusion of face before our holy God, confessing that righteousness is Yours alone. Have mercy on us, the sinners. Help us to confess those sins to you, if need be, to whomever else we need to confess them to, and to find forgiveness and healing. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.